As we begin this morning, I want to take just a second and say thank you to Brian and Caroline here, but also to all of our musicians. Uh, we don't say it often enough, but we sure appreciate y'all and what you do to help us worship on Sunday mornings. Great job. Where's Chris Cooksey? Where'd he go? Played the guitar and he left. There he is. Hey, man. Welcome. We're glad. <laughs> he knows what that's about, so that's between him and me. All right, take your Bibles, Luke chapter 7. Uh, I want to train your thinking as you're turning there to some of those scenes that we've all uh, witnessed, usually, for, I'm going to guess that almost all of us, if not all of us in here, witnessed it strictly on TV as we look historically backwards rather than as a current event. But the scene is on uh, the deck of a ship. And it's all of the gathered military brass of the United States in their dress outfits uh, as they collectively, not just the United States, by the way, but the allied forces of World War II, as those commanders gathered on the deck of that ship welcome in the defeated commanders of the Japanese army. And the scene on that ship, as we all can go back and see from historical footage, is of the Japanese army as they surrender of the warfare that was waged during what we now call World War II. My mind also jumps to what maybe more of us would be familiar with, not, although not all of us in here. At the end of the first Gulf War, as we saw General Norman Schwarzkopf and some of the other Allied force commanders as they gathered over there, and it seems like it was in a tent, if I remember right, and the Iraqi army officials came in and signed the surrender of the Iraqi forces as the Allied forces declared victory in that first Gulf War. Those pictures of situations like that, where we find one group of army officials or military officials, as they come in and they sign off on documents that say effectively, we were defeated and therefore we surrender. That's where I want us to be today, but what I want us to talk about today from this passage of Scripture, actually, it takes that picture, but it kind of challenges our thinking and what goes with that picture. Because the title of the message today is Surrender to Win, but the reality that we normally come up with in our own thinking is, if I surrender, that means by definition I did not win. But I think as we come to this passage today, we're going to find that uh, actually in God's economy and the way he deals with us, uh, as backward as this statement might seem, the reality is that that's what we get from the text that we look at today. So I want you to look in John, excuse me, in Luke chapter 7 as we take another step now as Jesus is being presented by this guy named Luke who writes about Jesus not just Jesus, the little baby in the manger that we celebrate at Christmas time, but Jesus now the one who has chosen disciples and he's begun to teach them. As we come to this passage today, there's questions I want us to ask, but let's read it first. So in chapter 7 of Luke's gospel, beginning in verse 1, Luke writes this, after he, that is Jesus, had finished all of these sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. And now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. And I want to stop for here in just a second and, and say a couple of things. The, the language that we get here, this centurion, a, an army official with 100 men who served under him. That's why they call him a centurion. 
he had a slave, and this slave, uh, it says, was highly valued by him. Now, we don't know. The word could mean either that he loved him as if he was like his own child, or that he was just valuable to him in the affairs of his home business and just the general point of living. Probably, uh, the word that Luke chooses here uh, is intentionally both. Here's a centurion who, as we see, as we read on through this, will be seen as one who was very um, involved with people and the relationship side of his life was apparently pretty strong. Uh, but it also is a guy who understands how to get things done. So probably this servant, this slave, was a little bit of both. He, he was valuable to him, but he also cared about him. So we pick up reading in verse 3. And it says, When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him the elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. There. Let me back up. I think I lost my place. I got a new Bible here, and so I'm, I'm kind of messing up here. When he was not far from the house, a centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I do not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go. And he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. It's an interesting passage of scripture for us. Here's a driving question I think that we have to answer as we are gathered here together. Why is it that this servant's faith is greater than those around him? And what do you think we ought to take away from that? Jesus says, in all of Israel, I've not seen someone with faith like this. Now that's a statement that we need to kind of stop and let that sink in on us. Here's a guy who's a Gentile. By definition, the Jews are not normally going to want him to be successful in all those kind of things. We're going to come to some of that. But he's not part of the chosen group. And yet Jesus says, of all places, I find this faith in him that surpasses what I've seen everywhere else. Why is that greater? What is it about him that we need to get a handle on as we work through this today? So here's a basic truth for you. How we respond to Jesus' authority directly impacts our lives. I'll try to establish that as we work through this, but that's the driving thought through this passage. 
What do we take from this guy? What do we take from the moment that we are witnessing here? What is Jesus saying that we need to get a handle on? Well, let's start off by examining what's similar in all of these people involved here. And actually what I want to do here is go backwards even into chapter 6. Now, I'm not going to take the time to go read it. I hope that you have a Bible in front of you there and you can go look at it at some point. But one of the things that we find that's common to all of these people, the the people of chapter 6, verses 17 through 19, where we were last week, remember where they're coming? and they're being healed and they want to touch him because power is going out from him. Those people that press in on Jesus have the same motive, key word, as does this centurion. They come for different reasons or maybe the same reason, but the motive is the same. And it's also the same motive that we find in these Jewish town leaders that the centurion sends to Jesus. All of those groups have the exact same motive motive in coming to Jesus, and that is that they're selfish. They just want help. Now, that begs the question for us, I think. Is it wrong to come to Jesus with a selfish motive? Let me go back and establish the motives of these guys real quickly. That group and we find in chapter 6, 17 through 19, they're coming to Jesus because they're sick or they need healing of some kind or maybe even it's a demon possession that they need to be delivered from. They come to him because of a personal need that says, I need this guy to get in on my situation. The centurion comes and his motive is not for his own healing, But by definition, what he has said here about his servant, that he's highly valued by him, whether it's loved or just valuable in his enterprise, whatever the case, the centurion looks at this and says, I don't want this guy to go away. And he's at the point of death. And so he remembers and he hears about this Jesus guy. That shouldn't surprise us. Jesus has used Capernaum as his whole center of activity in this early part of Luke's gospel. And we've heard about healings and we've heard about demon possessions or deliverances and, and all of those kind of things. In the next verses after today's sermon, we're going to find that Jesus heals um, and raises somebody from the dead. All of that stuff. And, and so in the Capernaum area where they are, all of this is circulating and it's raising the barometer of the spiritual sensitivity of that area. And so here's, and I got this guy who's sick and it would be good for me if Jesus would heal this guy. So he sends these guys, these town leaders, the elders, it says. Probably not religious leaders per se, although they might have had a place in the synagogue, but more than likely these were the guys who sat at the gate, who made the decisions of the town. They were the political somebodies of Capernaum. What's their selfish motive? I I don't really want to be unkind or anything like that. But if you look at it, it seems like their selfish motive in this is tied to the cash cow who was the centurion. You look at what it says. They come to Jesus and they say, this guy likes us. He's favorable to us. In fact, he built our synagogue. You have to do this for him. You see, for them, it wasn't so much about the slave. They could have cared less about the slave probably. What they cared about was we need to stay on the ends with the money guy in town. Is it ever wrong to come to Jesus purely from a selfish motive? I know that there are churches and circles of Christian people who would say, no, you need to come with the right motives. And 
I'm not sure what they mean by the right motive. Sometimes it's that, you know, kind of a, that real lofty kind of thinking that says just because of who he is. And we sang a lot about how, who Jesus is and who God is and his involvement in our lives. And that's plenty of reason for us to come to God just because of the nature of him rather than our need. But the reality that I find in this passage all the way through, the fact of the matter is they all come from a needy, selfish motive, and the key is that Jesus responds to it. That's kind of his pattern, as a matter of fact. As we found all the way through Luke's gospel early on, he always seems to respond to that neediness that causes people to come to him. So that leads me to say, from this passage and many others, that apparently Jesus doesn't think it's wrong when you come just out of purely selfish motives. I'm going to even take it a step further and tell you that I think the only reason you ever come to Jesus is out of selfish motives. At least at first, when it comes to that relationship part of him, well, I'll just put it to you this way. Let's hack on evangelicals for just a little bit. Okay, that includes us, so we're going to do a little bit of house cleaning here. All right, how do, okay, now this is, uh, in case you're visiting with us, every once in a while I like to do what I call the um, audience participation portion of our service, okay? So I'm going to ask a question and I want some answers, okay? How do we typically sell evangelism? We go to people, well, you know, only a handful of people go to people, I mean, you know, just generally speaking in church, it's not, I mean, not me, but, you know, we have the God squad that we send out to do the visits for people who need to be saved, right? So when we go to them, here's what we say. If you don't accept Christ as your Savior, what happens? You're going to go to hell. We say it lots of different ways. We try to dress it up a little bit. You better turn or you're going to burn. If you say that... Shame on you. Matter of fact, this is not going to be a surprise to most of you know me very well, but matter of fact, I get really uneasy with a lot of the ways that we package our evangelism because it's almost like we don't care about the individual. We just need to feel good about sharing the message. And so we notch our spiritual gun belt because, well, I told them. They didn't do anything with it, but I told them. Well, what did you tell them? Well, I told them, if you don't, if you don't accept Christ as your Savior, you're going to go to hell. We like to lean on hell. Well, here's the problem with that. First of all, it's entirely true. Okay? If you're sitting here today and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I'm going to tell you in the most loving way that I can, if you don't accept Christ as your Savior and he'll pay for your sins, you will go into eternity in the devil's hell. Okay? That's horrible news. But it's truth. So we sell evangelism with this mentality. You need to be selfish. Because if you're not selfish enough to come to Jesus and recognize, I can't save myself, then you can't be saved because he's the only one who can do that for you. Okay? So... Again, I want to be loving and I want to be careful how we do this, but the reality is we all come to Jesus from a selfish motive. I need help at the most basic level of who I am as a person. I need him to rescue me from the consequences of sin. Only he can do that. That needs to drive us to Christ. 
So I, I don't want to hack on these people in this passage for being selfish in their motives in coming to Jesus. Actually, what I want to do is use this as a way to say to all of us, if your situation is such where you're in here today and you're facing something and it is totally beyond you and you have no idea how you're going to make it through, run to Jesus with that. Be selfish. Go to him and say, I need help. But one of the problems that we get into with that is that we set up these things in our mind that keep us from running to him. One of the things that I found with Christian people is that there's that part of us that's reluctant to run to him because we've run to him before and we always end up in trouble again. Run to Jesus. First time, a hundred and first time, or a million and first time. Run to him. Be selfish. That's the first part of this. Um, another reason I think sometimes we don't go to him is because we just kind of think maybe we're just too dirty. You know, I, I, need to, I need to clean up my act and then I'll go to him. That's like saying you need to get a bath before you take a shower. He's the one who does the cleaning. That's why you need him in the first place. So run to him. Because when you run to him, what you're going to find is a Savior. And we sang about some of this this morning. A Savior who throws wide his arms and says, Come to me, all who labor. And what? I'll smack you down. I'll kick you away. I'll thumb you into the ground. No, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Aren't you tired of the drain of living? Aren't you tired of the fight day in and day out trying to make sense and trying to make a way? Run to him. Be selfish. Let that motive motivate you to get the only help that that you can have. He is the only help that will satisfy your need. But here's the deal. Everybody with me on that? All right, that's the easy news, that's the good news. That's the news we love to talk about in church. But there's something else going on in this passage, and I think we need to get a handle on it, okay? Because this is the part that keeps churches not so full. If it was just that part, churches would be packed. There's another element to this life of following Jesus that gets to us a little bit. I think for Jesus, the, the, the issue, the question, is not only what gets us to him, It's more about what keeps us there with him. All right, now let me make sure that we clarify this. I'm not talking about you being able to hang on to your salvation. It's not what I'm talking about, all right? Scripture is pretty clear, my opinion. Okay, I'll just say it straight up. I think it's very clear that when you come to know Jesus Christ, salvation is in him, it's not in you. Okay? So if only he can give it, that also means that only he could give it up for you, and he's already said he's not going to do that. All right? So when you come to him and trust him for salvation, then, then that salvation stretches through eternity. Okay? You can't lose it. You can't do something that causes him to let you go. Doesn't just say Scripture doesn't just say we're in his hand. It says we are his hand. And here's just a logical one for you. The very definition of the word eternal as in eternal life, 
means that if you could lose it, it's not eternal. Right? All right, so I'm not talking about losing your salvation. I'm talking about the process of sticking with him as one of his followers. All of us, every one of us, I suppose, could go in our own memory banks and identify one or a dozen people who started with Christ, but somehow they filtered out and filtered away. Some of them are our children. Some of them are our grandchildren. Some of them are our friends. Some of them are friends of our friends. But we know people who started well. They ran to him from a selfish motive. They got the message, Jesus loves you. But there just wasn't enough in it for them to stick around, it seems. I think Jesus is very concerned with this idea of staying connected with him and following him. That's what discipleship is. Luke writes his gospel not just to give the good news of Jesus Christ for salvation, but also to show us what it means to be one of his followers. John the Baptist is just on the verge now of having a real crisis about this very issue. You remember John the Baptist in the wilderness? Jesus walks up. Hello, y'all remember that? All right, and when he sees Jesus, what does John the Baptist say? Another audience participation. He says, behold, what do you say, Barbara? The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You think John got it on who Jesus was at that point? Yes. Everybody go, yes, okay? So, well, you don't have to say it out loud. That's, that's TV preacher stuff. Verse 11. Oh, excuse me, not 11. Verse 18. Same chapter, verse 18. The same John the Baptist who said, this is the guy. I've been telling you about him. This is him. Now in verse 18, it says, the disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? John the Baptist of all people is now beginning to question, oh man, is this, are you, um, I, I, are you the guy? Churches are full. No, churches are no longer full with people who ask that question. Are you really? I'm not sure I heard, but I'm having a struggle with whether I should stick with you or not, Jesus. Jesus doesn't help this at some points. Here's what I mean by that. In Luke's gospel, by the time we get to chapter 9, you're going to see Jesus says, if any of you will come after me and follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow. So somewhere in that, Jesus seems to be saying, you come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, but don't follow me haphazardly as if I'm your miracle boy. It's a good message for our day. When we have a whole move of Christendom that seems to say, Jesus is your miracle boy. I'll tell you something, Jesus is nobody's boy. We sing about some of that. We're going to talk about it more in just a second. So Jesus starts cutting to the chase with some of these would-be followers of his, and he says, there's, there's commitment involved in this. And then we get to John chapter 6. 
This is, to me, one of the most disturbing passages, sections of the New Testament. Because by the time we get to John chapter 6, Jesus is dealing with these guys and he's starting to tell them things about discipleship and what it means to follow him. Uh, and, and there's some statements in there that even make us go, ooh, that's pretty tough. And even there it says, and you don't have time to turn there, so let me just read it for you. In John chapter 6, verse 66, this is what we read. And after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And so Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? <laughs> Jesus, you know, he's not just looking for a bunch of followers. He's looking for people who are committed. You want to leave too? And Simon Peter, the big mouth disciple, the impetuous one, the one who most of the time uh, speaks first and thinks about it later, or swings a sword or a dagger and thinks about it later. Simon Peter occasionally also clutches it for us. And at this point, after Jesus says, are you going to leave too? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. The, Greek, the strength of the Greek there is you alone have the words of life. And so I think that Jesus is, in fact, open to us and allows our selfish motives for us to come to him. But the reality also is that he's more concerned about what keeps us with him than just the initial draw. And the answer to that, has, we have to have an answer to that. Here's a good principle for us to work from. I'm going to rush through a few things here very quickly so we can finish. Here's a good principle for us to draw from this passage. Good or acceptable faith is that which drives you to Christ based on the hope that he can and will help you. That's at work in the passage we're looking at here today. They're selfishly motivated. They come to him wanting him to do something for them. Now, I use the word hope here intentionally, and this is the wishful thinking kind of hope. They come to Jesus. I, when I was first started studying this passage, all week long I've been chewing on this and, and trying to pull out. I knew something was in there. I just couldn't, you know. And so finally it dawned on me. It's interesting to me that these elders and the centurion, they don't have any question about whether Jesus can heal. You'll go back and read the language of that. Those elders go to Jesus. They don't even act like it's an issue whether he can do it or not. They're starting to talk him into why he should do it. And isn't that interesting? That for some of the people there, they're not too sure. The Pharisees are religiously, they're not too sure about this Jesus guy. But man, the regular people, they're going, he can do it. We've seen him do it. So they come to him with this expectation and this wishful thinking that he will do it. Maybe that's us today. Maybe our good theological Baptist upbringing in the back of our minds has convinced us, I know that he's the king of kings and lord of lords. I know that he can do anything. I know that he can speak the words and the worlds come into order. I know that. What I don't know is if he was willing to help me with my job problem that I've got tomorrow. That's right down there on the bottom shelf. Which drives us back to this guy. The driving question of the message is, why is his faith, this centurion, why is his greater than the people around him? 
I think the key to answering that is in the way he views himself. Now, I could talk to you a little bit about that attitude of entitlement that seems to be rampant in our world, or at least American society today. That attitude that says, because I'm breathing, you owe me something. It came to to light for me years ago. My kids, I had one in elementary school, that would be Lauren, and one in junior high that was Colin, and one in high school, Brandon. And they came home. We would send send kids either money for lunch at school or we would send lunch with them. And they came home one day, one of them did, and said, we, we can't take our lunch to school anymore. Uh, I thought, that's great. They cut out the lunch hours. going to save me tons of money on groceries. <laughs> Not so. You see, what they did in the place that we lived is they began to tell kids like ours and some others whose parents sent lunch with them, you can't do that anymore. Because if you take your lunch, they have other kids in our class who can't afford to have lunch and it makes them feel bad when you have lunch and they don't, at least from home. And so the school told me, and I had several follow-up visits with administrators about this. This is what they told me, Mr. Rotrammel, we're not doing that anymore. We put in for a grant and we get everybody in the school district gets free lunch. Whatever else you want to call that, and I have some choice words, names for that stuff. But here's the reality of it is, that's an entitlement. That's selfish motive gone crazy. You owe it to me because I'm here. This centurion has exactly the opposite perspective. Exactly the opposite. If anybody should have felt okay with promoting himself, it should have been this guy. He apparently had some kind of resource, some wealth. He had a slave. He helped to build the the, uh, synagogue there. Um, But the reality is that he comes at Jesus through people. And his language is such. Verse 6, he says, I'm not worthy. Verse 7 says, because of that, I I didn't presume that, that I would come to you or you would come to me even. This is not false humility for this guy. The way he talks about this and the authority stuff in there, I have a servant and I tell him do this and he does it and I have a soldier, I tell him go there and he goes. He gets the authority that he has. He just chooses to park it when it comes to Jesus. And that grabs Jesus' attention like nothing else has with these other people. He gets to the heart of it all when he affirms this basic truth because of who you are I know that you have the ability and the authority to get stuff done. Here's why that matters. A couple of quick truths and we're done. When we reach that point, we recognize who Jesus is and the authority that is inherent in that position. Not just the position, but just in his character and who he is. When we get a handle on that, by definition, we position ourselves into a lower level. We surrender to his authority by definition. If you don't do that, then you don't understand his authority. But you see, that's the human condition. That's the struggle that we have. We all want to push our own authority, but this guy teaches us this surpassing faith that he has, essentially says, since you have that authority, I surrender my claims to importance and to positions. That's why I put this 
whatever's supposed to be a throne on there, on that slide for you. Because the reality is every one of us has a throne in our lives and either we're sitting on it or we're going to let somebody else sit on it. And the reality is, understanding his authority, we recognize only he can sit on that. But also tied to that, when we recognize his authority, it forces us into the decision to surrender. And that sounds like loss to us. Through the years, I've buried a lot of soldiers from the greatest generation, those who served in World War II. One of those was a man, Captain Charles Powell. And I met him at a funeral for another one of his unit members. Together, they had gone with Patton, and I think think they were with Patton. I know that he was at the Battle of the Bulge and some of the most horrific stuff you can imagine in war. He talked to me about and tied to all of that and Uh, But he was one of those guys who made it all the way, and there's a picture that he gave me of him standing in the big living room area of Hitler's, uh, Adolf Hitler's Eagle's Nest place way up. You'll look at it on the internet, you can see way back. And it was Hitler's private getaway place. By definition... Hitler and his armies had to surrender their power. The fact that an American army captain was able to take a picture in that spot only days or weeks after Hitler's army fell is evidence of when you surrender, you lose power. And that's hard for us in the Christian life. It's easy to come to church and sing great songs led by great musicians about how wonderful and awesome God is and how powerful and by his own person. Uh, But when it comes right down to the bottom shelf and surrendering him, that's a problem for us. But this centurion gets it. It's tied to the authority of Jesus. And no matter who you are and how much you got it going on, compared to him... You've got to surrender. Peter understood that. That's, that's where we answer the question, what made his faith greater. Peter answers that. When Jesus said, are you going to leave too? Peter said, where are we going to go? There is nobody like you. So that's us today. Faced with that decision and that choice once again. And if that's hard for you, that surrender thing. Let me just point you to a sermon that was put down by a guy named Chris Tomlin. Actually, he called it a song. I think it's a sermon. From the highest of heights to the depths of the sea, all creation proclaiming your majesty, indescribable, the glory of God. How could we not surrender to him? when we really understand who he is. Let's pray. My question to you today is uh, what place does Christ have in your life? Sometimes we uh, give Jesus a tip of the hat at church, but we give authority in our lives to all kinds of people. It's possible 
that some of you are sitting here today and somebody has offended you and hurt you in some way and you have let them have God's authority in your life. In other words, they assume the position of God because every time you turn around, you're thinking about what they said or what they did and it eats your lunch. And every waking moment, or at least those moments that nothing else is going on, you immediately go to them and you nurse off of that hurt. And what you've done is you've taken the authority away from God and you've handed it to them and you've let them be in charge. That's just dumb. I'm, you know, I love you and all that, but that's just dumb. Because God, in all of his wisdom and all of his power and glory, has chosen through Jesus Christ to involve himself with you. Who is it that has authority in your life today? And why would you not run to Jesus? And so, Father, we ask you to give us the grace we need to do exactly that. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.